Last Sunday, we began an 11-week series entitled Origins. Continuing today, and Lord willing, over the next nine weeks, we hope to journey through the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. Now, the book of Genesis serves not only as the truthful account of our beginnings, wherein our creator God speaks heaven and earth and all things into existence. Genesis also serves as an introduction to the books of the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. These first five books were revealed to and recorded by Moses roughly around the 15th century BC. Last week in Genesis chapter one, we were introduced to the glorious main character of the story of scripture, of the realities of heaven and earth and life itself. We were introduced to the all creative, all sovereign, all authoritative, all good creator God who is all sufficient within his triune self. We saw that In six days, by the word of his power, he called into existence and obediently came stars and plants and whales and birds and bugs, as well as the crowning jewel of all his creation, mankind. The Hebrew word Adam or Adam means mankind in general, but Adam is also the actual name of the first historical male whom we are about to meet in more detail today in Genesis chapter 3. Last week, we concluded at Genesis 1, 31, with God, picture it, you know, kind of smiling upon the wonderful world he'd made, especially the male and female whom he had made to reflect his likeness on the earth. And with that warm smile on his face, he stared out over all that he had made and he said, wow, this is all very good. It is. Now I'd invite you to follow along as the story continues. Genesis chapter two. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he'd formed And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It was or is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. 
and the gold of that land is good. Medallium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and Hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you say a word of prayer with me? Lord our God, use this passage to teach us about you and about us, and about how we are to live in light of you. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many wonderful themes and details packed into this passage, many ways that we could spend the next few minutes, but for the remainder of our time, going to consider three themes that we see in this passage, all centered around God. Number one, God's resting from his work. Number two, God's blessing of his work. And number three, God's command to his work. <clears throat> number one, God's resting from his work. Many Bible readers wonder why the seventh day, which is recorded here in verses one through three, why wasn't that you know, included in chapter one with the previous six days? Well, a man named Stephen Langton, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 13th century, he is responsible for the Bible's chapter and verse divisions that help us to organize and to read it and study it. And while his chapter and verse divisions aren't perfect, I do think he got it right here. I think he got it right in placing the seventh day at the beginning of a new chapter because the seventh day is very different from the previous six. In verse one of our passage, we're not jumping yet into the seventh day because we're given a quick recap of all that God had made in chapter one. 
And then in verse 2, after God had finished his six-day creative work, we're told that he rested on the seventh day. God rested, and he blessed it, and he personally set it apart. He made it holy. He set it apart as different from the other six. Now, interestingly, what we don't read here is that there was evening and there was morning that seventh day. Because as some commentators surmise, the seventh day really never ended. God's creative work was complete and it's still complete today. I mean, he's not making any new life forms. He's not making any new species of plants or birds or fish. If he were, evolutionists would have a heyday getting to discover a brand new life form or development, but God was and is finished creating things out of nothing. And because creation wore him out, he rested. <laughs> no. The Hebrew word for rest doesn't mean to sleep or to detach. It means to cease, to stop production. God's rest wasn't due to fatigue he didn't need to rest any more than he needed to create to begin with. He was and is not lacking. He was and is not bound by mortal limitation. He is infinite and boundless and limitless. And yet, we're told, God rested. This seventh day rest of God's anticipates the fourth commandment that he would give to Moses in Exodus 20 when God says this, remember the Sabbath day, keep it set apart. Six days you shall labor and work, but the seventh day belongs to the Lord. Now, that passage that I just read to you from Exodus 20 is not our passage this morning, but it does bear asking in light of our verses right here, Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3, how about you and me? Do we follow our Creator's example of rest, of stopping production, ceasing? Do we ever stop producing, stop laboring, stop working and cultivating and researching and toiling in our minds or in the field. Rest is not easy for many of us, but if our limitless God determined it was good to rest, what might that mean for us limited creatures? In many ways, resting is, is similar to fasting in that it is a discipline of faith. And this discipline of resting has the power to refocus us on the supremacy and dependability of our good creator God who finished all of his good work. Now God's rest here his stopping of production does not mean that he is detached from or disinterested in the world he has made. In fact, both scripture and our own experiences reveal the exact 
opposite. God is very active in his good and sovereign management of creation. If we didn't know that he is active in his sovereign management of creation, we wouldn't pray. What's the point? But we come before God because we know that he's present and active and we ask him to intercede. God is very active. God is willing and working for his glory. And in fact, there is no better demonstration of this than later in the biblical story when he personally steps down into creation in the person of Christ in order to inaugurate the renewal of all things. God is very active. He is not creating in the sense that he did when he created all things. He is active, though. And hallelujah for it. So point number one, we just simply looked at God's resting from his work. And let us be invited to do the same. I'm not gonna say more than is in this passage, but a day of rest is a command. And there's more that could be said about it. It is to our absolute joy and our health and our focus on him. It is to our good that we observe a day of stopping. Number two, God's blessing of his work. We need to note that <clears throat> in verses four through 14, we're not given an alternate account of creation. We're not given a different account from what we just read in chapter one. We're given a more detailed account of what we've already read in chapter one, particularly a more detailed account of day six. In verses four through 14, we're told that before any vegetation had sprouted from the earth due to lack of God-given rain, God did cause a mist, a morning dew, if you will, to prepare the fertile ground for growth. Then in verse seven, we're given a more detail, uh, detailed account about God's creation of man. Listen, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed life, or no, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now we're looking at point number two, God's blessing of his work. There are, there are a litany of blessings and provisions that we see God bestow to creation and to his people. Here are two right here. Firstly, <clears throat> in verses four, five, seven, and onward, did you notice God is now referred to as the Lord God. The title God emphasizes his sovereign power and authority, but the title Lord God or Yahweh God emphasizes his personal relational nature. Let's just be mind blown for just a moment that our creator, Lord God, sovereign over heaven and earth is relational, not only within his own triune self, Father, Son, Spirit, he also wants to know us and to be known by us. Amazing, what a blessing, what a gift. The creator wants a relationship with his creatures. Here's another blessing. Notice in verse seven how God breathes life into the man. This is significant because as God personally breathes life into the man's nostrils, 
The man is given a spirit, a soul, moral sensitivity, and a conscience. This makes the man very different from the other created creatures, the animals. It also provides for the man, listen to this, God's in-breathing into the man provides for the man everything he will need to obey God's first command, which we'll get into here in a second. The command that God is about to issue to the man carries with it a spiritual responsibility. And so God in-breathes a spirit into the man so that he is able to obey. In all of scripture, never once is this not true, in all of scripture, God never once commands us to do anything that we are capable of doing. Verse seven showcases this. God always gives to us what we need so that we can obey him. Sweet mercy. What does this mean for me when I'm tempted on my phone to look at things that I ought not? What does this mean for me when I'm tempted to blow up in impatience on my wife and my kids? No, 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 no. God has in breathe. He has given me the capacity to not sin, to please him, to obey him. And now another blessing from God, verses eight and nine. God establishes the paradise garden called Eden. Name of my niece, hi Eden. The paradise garden of Eden as vegetation begins to sprout, including two significant trees, which we'll talk about in a moment. He puts the man in the midst of the garden. And in verses 10 through 14, look, the story might seem to digress for a moment, but there's a, there's a purpose here. We're told about rivers and precious stones and gold that saturates the paradise garden. One reason we're told these things is to convey the richness and the bounty and the beauty that God has blessed the man with. Look at what I've put you in the midst of, paradise. Fruit trees of every kind with no need for pesticides. Rushing rivers filled to the brim with aquatic life. Imagine it, fields and hills blanketed with soft green grass, no weeds, no need for shoes, vibrant colors and flavors and smells and sounds with no garbage or pollution or allergies. Wow, glory. <laughs> Imagine it. What a blessing of God to the man. And what a blessing to us, and here's why. Yes, our current creation and all of its fallenness is still beautiful, but the paradise garden of Eden that God created for Adam, it anticipates what the book of Revelation tells us will be restored to us at the new creation. It's gonna be sweet. If this is what creation was like at the start, imagine what new creation with all of its redemptive glory will be like. Before we move on to point three, let's consider 
a major blessing from God in verses 18 through 25. It begins in a curious way. Follow me on this. The only time in all the creation account when God saw that something wasn't good is here in verse 18. It has to do with the man's aloneness. According to God, the man needed a helper for cultivating and ruling over the lesser creatures of the earth. In verses 19 and 20, the man who is now called Adam, he gives names to all the creatures. That would have been fun to be there. Why on earth, Adam, did you call that creature that? Weird. Okay. Right? He gives names to all the creatures, but he does so alone, and it wasn't good in the eyes of God. Because isolation is not God's intention for us, community is. So the Lord God, the personal God, Yahweh God, after taking a rib from Adam, who was deeply asleep, thank God, (laughs) he uses it to create and to bless him with a counterpart, a helper, the woman. According to the mind of God, hear this, women, ladies, you are very important. Very, very, very important. Now notice the blessing of marriage between the man and the woman, verses 24 and 25. Back in Genesis 1, we were told in broad brush terms that God created the man and the woman and told them to be fruitful and multiply. But now, in chapter 2, verses 22 and 25, in a more detailed look at the order of events, we learn that God blessed them with marriage before he blessed them with multiplication. So since the outset of God's world, the blessing of marriage precedes procreation. And by the way, we know that marriage is in view here because verse 25 does not say that the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. What does it say? The man and his wife were. This is marital language. And the final blessing we need to notice here is laid out in verses 18 and 20 in the roles that God has given to the man and the woman. Genesis reveals a lot about the blessed cooperation and companionship between the man and the woman. Theologian Ken Matthews writes, They are both made in the image of God to multiply and to fill and to subdue the earth. But Genesis also reveals a lot about our blessed differences. Our sameness does not mean exactness. There is difference here. And our modern world is doing everything it can to war against this. I mean, the woman is fashioned by God What does it say? As helper to the man who has been fashioned as leader in the wording, the play of the wording here. In Genesis 3, we're not there yet, but look at this with me. After the woman eats the forbidden fruit, who does God come after? The man. He comes after Adam. Where were you when this happened? What have you done by failing to guard your wife? Give me an account, Adam. Now, 
in our day and age, with the rise of intense feminism and also with the rise of unbiblical manhood, a sinful man reads this passage and starts to get all giddy. But when we read this passage, men, and I'm speaking to me firstly in this room, we ought to tremble with a righteous fear. We're going to give an account for ourselves, for our wives, for our kids. We're going to be the first one that he comes after. We're going to be the first one that he asks when we meet him face to face, what did you do? Not just with your life, with your wife and your kids. And so the questions that I have for men in the room, I, I very seldom you know, go after you individually here. Do we guard our wives and pray for our wives and over our wives and speak to our wives and sacrifice for our wives and make, it, make difficult decisions on behalf of our wives so well that it is worship to our creator and it is loving to our wife? How good are we at our role? Because the roles that God gives us here are blessings. I once overheard a Christian woman in another church talk about how godly and sacrificial her husband was. Her husband, according to her, so godly, so sacrificial, it was icing on the cake to serve and embrace in her role of helper. It was a no-brainer. There was a way of her husband's language and conduct and spiritual leadership that she just wanted. She clamored to help him. It screams the Garden of Eden. It screams the role for which we've been made men and women. I have a lot to learn as a husband. I say that in front of my wife. I have a lot of growing up to do. I have a lot of stewarding the blessing of sacrificial leadership. And I venture to believe that many of us here do. God, give us help. Convict us by your word and lead us into the blessed joy of acting like men. Point number three, God's blessing. And there were, there were many more blessings in this passage of his work. But number three, God's command to his work. God's command to Adam in verses 16 and 17 contains an important pivotal theme because it sets the scene for verse or chapter three. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Notice how this command begins with God's abundant provision of virtually every tree. Every tree that flourishes with beautiful, bountiful nourishment of every kind is freely and fully given to the man to be enjoyed liberally. Every single tree but one the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now there is no indication that this tree had unique power in and of itself. However, the very presence of this tree does invite Adam to worship God freely 
through obedient devotion. The presence of this tree affords Adam a now spiritual responsibility in addition to his physical responsibilities of of working and keeping the garden. There's a spiritual component now. I've heard it taught, I've said this here before, I've heard it taught that it was merciful of God to place a forbidden tree in the garden because it served as a reminder to the man and later to the woman that although they had dominion over most things, they did not have dominion over everything. Only God has dominion over everything. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was God's reminder and an invitation to them. Let me give you an illustration. While I worked at a pizza shop in high school, the owner gave me authority over almost everything, but not the safe. I didn't have access to the safe. Only the owner had access to the safe, but the very presence of the safe served as a reminder as well as an invitation, a reminder, I wasn't the owner. I'm not him and an invitation to please the owner by not tampering with it, not coveting it, but sitting and dwelling and working in my role that I had been assigned joyfully and contently. This first command not only sets the scene for the first sin in chapter three, but this first command, there's a lot of anticipations This first command anticipates the commands of God's law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This first command of many, 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 many commands that we read in Scripture begs a very important question. Hear me. Do the commands of God diminish human joy and freedom? Or do they enlarge it? Pastor Tim Keller comments that freedom is not so much the absence of parameters, but the presence of the right ones because those parameters are liberating. And that way of thinking is not unique to Tim Keller. He totally uh, plagiarized uh, King David. No, he didn't plagiarize. I don't, I, I'm, not, I'm not going on the record making that accusation. Uh, listen to King David's words, Psalm 19, 7 through 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So could it be? Beginning with God's command to Adam here in verses 16 and 17, could it be that the Lord God in his commanding is in fact inviting his people into a life of flourishing and freedom? All we have to do is read chapter three to find out 
had the man and the woman obeyed the command, look what wouldn't have happened. I'd say that following the Lord's commands is the gateway into a life of flourishing and joy and freedom. It is to our joy that God commands us not to lust. It is to our joy that God commands us not to gossip about one another. It's to our joy that God commands us to rest and to embrace our created roles in the home and in the church and to marry our spouse before we multiply and fill the earth and so on and so forth. What is God's word telling you to do or not to do right now in the silence of the spirit telling you and speaking to you? It's to your joy and to your flourishing that you obey. Give us the audacity to obey, Lord. And the bravery, the ability to see that it's to our freedom, not to our binding. How about communion? I've talked enough. Two weeks ago, we examined this God-commanded ordinance. And I presented to you what I believe and what the other pastors of Oaks Church believe the Bible teaches about communion and who it's for. This is important, we're about to take, so let me just give a quick rehash. Communion is for men and women who have been cut to the heart by the gospel who are capable of self-examination and discernment. Meaning men and women who are capable of asking themselves, Am I truly turning from my sin and trusting in the sacrificial death of Christ? Am I truly striving to obey God's commands and put on the righteousness of Christ? Am I truly stewarding my time, talent, and money for the glory of Christ? Am I truly contributing to the edification of this local church the way God commands me? Communion is for men and women who are capable of self-examination and discernment. Also for men and women who are capable of, capable of, church membership relationships, the 59 one another's that we read in scripture. Men and women who are capable of coming together in unity despite our disagreements with one another, and there are millions here with us this morning, millions of disagreements, but we're capable of coming together in unity and togetherness, agreeing in the Lord and declaring the Lord's atoning death until he returns. If you are capable and prepared to take with your brothers and sisters the bread and the cup in a worthy manner, then in a moment after I pray, I would invite you to come and do that. For the younger kids in this room, the pastors of Oaks did say this and do say this. Keep watching, keep listening to your parents as they endeavor to disciple you. Keep asking questions, keep learning who Jesus is and what he has done, and know we are praying for you that your faith would persist with what begins, with what's, what seems to be the beginnings of faith, that your faith would persist. So I'm just gonna go on record, we don't believe it's okay for young children to take communion. But we do believe it's okay for those who are capable of deep self-examination, self-discernment, 
led and empowered by the Holy Spirit, ringing and bringing change about in your life to the glory of Christ and displaying of his fruit. Now, I will say this. I feel like I keep having all these tangents, right? <laughs> this is one of those mornings I don't seem to, 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 to quiet myself. Do you notice, really quickly with me, verse nine, God's provision of the tree of life. Ephesians 2, verse 9. The fruit of this tree provided the perpetuation of life without death due to sin. Of course, we know because we live in it, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all rebelled against God just as Adam and Eve will do next week in Genesis chapter 3. And yet, here's communion. God has provided another tree the tree of Calvary, the fruit of this tree, signed, sealed, and delivered by the blood of the Son of God, the fruit of this tree provides us the perpetuation of life after death. And so to all of us, who will be released by the Holy Spirit as we self-discern and examine to all of us who will be released to take this meal together, here's the sensory moment. Remember, the communion meal, the bread and the cup is sensory. It invokes memory and thought. As you taste the bread, remember this, that as real as that bread is in your mouth, so real is the fact that the Son of God became a man and gave up his body for you that you might have eternal life. As you taste the bitter sweetness of the juice, remember the sweetness of having your sins forgiven, which came at a very bitter cost to Jesus who poured out his blood for you and your sin. And in a spirit of repentance and joy and worship and celebration, let us take as the family of God in this local expression, let's not do so with our eyes closed over in the corner, let's look, we're all eating this together in a spirit of unity, declaring the Lord's death until he comes and he's coming really, 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 really soon. Amen. Let's pray and then we'll sing and take communion. While I pray, I would invite our communion servers to come forward. Father, I said a lot, and it's embarrassing because in, very, in, very, in, in a lot fewer words, your word says infinitely more. Genesis chapter two says infinitely more than what I have just regurgitated, but I do ask this. Will you please have mercy on us to give us hearts to have heard what we've heard, to respond to what we have heard, to rest, to obey to celebrate that despite the fact that we have all disobeyed you and deserving of death, you in fact have taken that death in the person and work of Christ upon yourself and our sin so that in the name of the, of the resin, risen Christ, we might now come with repentant faith and be saved forever and ever unto a kingdom that is unshakable and that's gonna look a lot like a very glorified garden of Eden. I'm excited, we are excited, and we worship you with repentance and gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.